I want to begin this morning by talking about uh, the comparison game we all play uh, with each other. Uh, uh, it's it's kind of part of being a human being, I guess, um, but it's also part of being a Christian. So we, you know, look at other people and we, we don't just get jealous, but we also admire other people and we look at them and think, wow, that person has really got an amazing life. I wish my life was like them. And um, sometimes, you know, it can get really hard for us because can can drive us to distraction and i think social media we know that social media has really made it worse or harder you know this stuff because everyone seems to have an instagram ready life you know with smiles and giggles and travel and you know great fashion and exciting relationships it seems to be the case when you're looking at the social media that that everyone else's life's much better than yours um and one of the problems for christians is uh, that sometimes this can tell us um or it can send a message to us which can really discourage us in our faith. I've often had, um, especially young people, come to me, um, you know, maybe they've grown up in the church um, and thought one way about what it means to be a Christian, and then they sort of start to get to know other people who are not Christians, and they say to me, look, my friends, they have a much more exciting life than me. They have more um, exciting experiences, travel their relationships are a lot more dynamic and, and you know, um, sort of ecstatic. And, um, and also, not only that, but they seem to be much more Christian than my Christian friends at church. I mean, they're much more loving. They, you know, they love the poor. I mean, my friends, they, they use keep cups, whereas all my friends at church, they come to church with paper cups. I mean, you know, they just don't care about the environment. And so this goes on and on, this comparison. And it discourages them. It makes them think that maybe being a Christian is not really worthwhile. And I'm sure psychologists have a bit to say about this. You know, the old thing that you, you judge your own family a lot harsher than everyone else because obviously you know them more. You've spent more time with your own family. But I, and I, I'm, I'm sure you could probably, without not having read a paper on this or anything, that you could extend that problem to religious communities too. The people we know the best are the ones we're the harshest critics of. But I also want to offer another suggestion, and that is that if we are thinking this way, perhaps it could be because we've got a wrong understanding of what our true identity is as Christians. I would love it if everyone who's in our church would be able to say this identity statement. This is the identity statement. Faith in Jesus has made me spiritually alive and now I can live the life that God wants me to live. Faith in Jesus has made me spiritually alive. Now I can live the life God wants me to live. This is a basic identity concept for the Christian. If we really really believe this, then we would be free from the comparison game because we wouldn't be focused on other notions of what a good life is and we'd just be focused on the life that God wants us to live. We would get on living. And over the next month, um, each week, we're going to look at statements that are linked to our, our identity and statements that are, are grounded in the common areas of brokenness and struggle for people in this part of Melbourne. Um, and the, each of these statements have a, a from and a to so today it's from death to life. And next week it's going to be from shame to acceptance. And then it's going to be from self to others 
then it's going to be from consumer to mission. And then on the camp, we're going to look at from striving to abiding. So let's look at from death to life and see what this really means. In the second chapter of Paul's letter to Ephesians, which we've had read, read, read to us just before, Paul prays for the church that they really know deep in their hearts what it is to be alive in Christ, what it is to have moved from death in their sins to alive in Christ. He says in verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's saying to them, Before you were Christians, you were as good as dead. Now, what does he mean by this? It's pretty harsh language. And obviously, it's a metaphor for something else because they weren't actually dead, like they were walking around and eating and breathing and living. Isn't this a bit extreme, this language? Well, let's see what he's actually saying. What he's actually describing is three aspects of life for the human being that make us apart from God. First of all, um, they were a failure and a rebel towards God. Secondly, they were enslaved to sin. And thirdly, they were condemned. And it's all in the passage. Firstly, let's have a look at that. They were failures and rebels. Paul says they were dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, what, there is actually a difference between transgressions and sins, and I want to try and explain it to you. Um, transgressions comes from a Greek word that means missing the mark. You just never hit the target. You know, you try and you just don't make it. But then there's also our sins where it's actually you rebel against God. You cross a boundary line and uh, the, where you're consciously going against what God wants for your life, God's standard of holiness. And you might think when we say the confession, we just said it before, well, I've been a good person this week. I, I didn't kill anyone or, or steal or I kept my lust under control. I uh, didn't swear. You might come up with this kind of list of what you think is an obedient life. But then what about all the things you should have done that you didn't do? It's, it's, it's impossible for us, um, without God's help, of being living the perfect life, is it? isn't it? We know that that's true. And this is the state of humanity. And this is why, where the Christians in Ephesus were. That's why they were dead in their transgressions and sins. They were helpless before God, before they became Christians. Secondly, they were dead because they were slaves to sin. So Paul said that they followed the ways of the world, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So they had no real freedom. They lived under the rule of Satan, it says. They gratified the cravings of the flesh and followed their desires and thoughts in verse 3, it says. These are the sins of both the body and the mind. So the flesh actually covers all forms of self-confidence, even the pride you might have in your own upbringing or your family or where you live or what school you went to or your religion or your own self-righteousness. Wherever self rears its ugly head against God or humanity, there is the flesh. The uh, mid-20th century English scholar F.F. Bruce writes that sins of the flesh can manifest itself in respectable forms as well as in this disreputable pursuits of first century paganism. Don't think you've escaped it just because you're living a respectable life. You might also think to yourself, how are human beings slaves 
to anything. Uh, haven't we got free will? The American theologian Jonathan Edwards, another famous theologian, says this. Says, We're free to choose, but we are always slaves to our greatest desire. We will all, all only choose what we want the most. And I'm sure everyone in this room knows what it's like to be a slave to some kind of sin in one form or another. So also, they were dead, these Christians in Ephesus, before they were Christians, because um, they were condemned, verse 3b, like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath. So dead is actually a descriptor of their relationship to God. It's like um, the father in the prodigal son story. He says, this son of mine was dead to me, um, he says at one point. In other words, the relationship had just completely broken down. He was he was like he was dead. Only it's much far worse with God. You don't want to be in that relationship with God. And you're also dead in, in what you deserve, God's wrath, according to the passage, which will actually kill you. So let's summarize. What does it mean to be dead, according to what Paul says in this passage? They were fa- failures and rebels towards God, slaves to sin and condemned. John Stott says it like this if you're struggling to grasp this. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. Pretty serious. Now let's look at alive, moving from that space of being dead to alive. Central to the Christian faith is the gospel, which says that if we have faith in Jesus and we're believers in Jesus, we actually have died with Jesus and we've risen and we've ascended with him as well. It actually goes as far as to say in this passage, If you've seen a baptism, which I'm sure many of you have, you'll see the imagery of going down into the water and coming out again, the death with Christ and rising again with Christ. It demonstrates the hope that we put in, in Jesus, that because we are joined to him, we have a new life. We are are, are actually spiritually alive and that we have an eternity with him. And dying and rising and ascending with Christ, it's the theological foundation of this passage. It's right in the middle. Look at verse 5 and 6. God made us alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. And verse 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us. So that's the ascension bit. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, if you've been wondering about your own salvation and unsure about your own um, eternal future, you can have hope that your salvation is secure with Jesus Christ, who is seated, enthroned at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. And God has given you the Holy Spirit right now as you live as like a deposit. It's like your, your ticket into eternity. 
Paul says in Romans 8, verse 30, those who God has justified, in other words, made right with God, um, forgiven, he has also glorified, um, placed in the heavenly realms, or given a resurrection future. Your home is where Christ is. You are a citizen of heaven. And you're probably looking around right now saying, uh, how am I seated in the heavenly realms? I'm looking around and I'm seeing uh, uh, the Clifton Hill Primary School Hall. You know, it doesn't feel like I'm there. Uh, believe it or not, the church, our church, that church, is actually your heavenly home on earth right now. The early church father, Oregon, went as far as to say, those who are regenerated through divine baptism, it's all big language, but those who are regenerated through divine baptism are placed in paradise, that is, in the church. But it's also a descriptor of your eternity. Um, you're, you're in heaven right now in the sense that you're as good as in heaven right now. Your salvation is secure with Jesus. Nothing can get in the way. So to be alive in Christ means that spiritually speaking, you have moved from, with Christ from being dead in your sins as a slave to sin and condemned to being alive in Christ. You have resurrected and ascended with him and your salvation is secure. Your place in heaven is secure and you live out the rest of this life with the Holy Spirit as your uh, deposit. And why did God save us? It's all in the passage. It was nothing that we had done. And this is a foundational part of being a Christian as well. Um, God has not saved us because he looked at us and said, you qualify, B plus close enough, you can be saved. Look at verses 8 and 9, two very important verses in the Christian faith. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There is nothing inside of us that caused God to save us. It's all inside of him. Look at verse 4. It is his love and his mercy because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. Look at verse 5 and 8. It is his grace. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 7. God's kindness, his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Uh, John Stott put it this way, we were dead and helpless to save ourselves. Only mercy could reach the helpless, for mercy is, though, is love for those who are suffering. We were under God's wrath. Only love could triumph over wrath. We would, we'd only deserved God's judgment on account of our trespasses and sins. Only grace could rescue us from our, our, um, our punishment, for grace is undeserved favour. Why then did God act out of his sheer mercy, love, grace, and kindness? Now, in our first reading, uh, the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19, the tax collector, we see Jesus who, it says in the passage, came to save the lost. Seek and save the lost, should I say. Who came to seek and save the lost. Um, and this is Jesus' whole purpose of his life. Zacchaeus was dead in his sins. He was a tax collector, but um, actually people who understand that culture, historians better than I do, I've read one person who says, really the tax collectors then were extortionists. You could think of them like mobsters, right? So he's kind of like mafia in where, where the, his boss is, yes, the emperor, but like everyone's just here, ripping the, the community off. Um, 
But Jesus showed his mercy, his love, his kindness, his grace to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus invited Jesus into his home and they shared a meal together. And that meal um, is kind of an image of the kingdom of God where um, um, dead sinners are reconciled with the living God. Now he's in fellowship with Jesus. He's been forgiven. He's alive in Christ. That's a great image. And so what does he do? His life is turned around. And over and over again, we see this in the New Testament, don't we? Characters, the Samaritan woman at the well we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, the, when Jesus healed the official son, the whole household was so blown away that it says they all became Christians and followed him. The, the whole household moved from death to life. Uh, the woman caught in adultery, the centurion, um, the thief on the cross who at the last minute before he died realized who Jesus was, he moved from death to life. Truly, truly, um, today you'll be with me in paradise, says Jesus. Saul, who was rescued from his life of being a, basically a religious ex- extremist and persecuting Christians, moved from death to life. They all had their salvation with secure with Christ in the heavenly realms. They were all the recipient of God's mercy, kindness, love, and grace. But there's also another thing about being um, alive with Christ. It's in the passage, and that is the purpose. We've got a new purpose. Look at verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he's transformed us, not so we just sit around waiting for heaven. That's sort of not the story of the Christian life. It's actually so that we can serve God and serve other people. He has transformed us so that we can pass on the mercy, love, grace, and kindness to other people. Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 5, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But the, but the purpose, this is not Paul now, but the purpose and effect of our being united by faith to a risen Christ is that here and now, this is Paul's words, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a purpose, walking in the new life. So earlier I gave you a sentence, which I hope you could say for yourself. Faith in Jesus has made me spiritually alive. Now I can live the life God wants me to live. The life that God wants you to live is the life of good works that you've been prepared, you've been created to do. But it is not, however, necessarily a life of excitement and adventure filled with ecstatic experiences, with romance and thrills and spills and restaurants and holidays. It's not necessarily that. And this brings us back to the disillusioned person who I described at the start, who was comparing themselves, their life, the the Christian comparing their life to other people's lives, who was saying they appear more alive than me. Their life is more exciting. They are more Christian than most Christians I know. Perhaps my whole life is a sham. Well, there's probably two errors being made here um, that's, Partly they're not understanding the death to life that we've just heard about from Ephesians 2, what life really looks like. But it's also this. It could be they've got a misunderstanding of John 10.10b, what it means to live life to the full. It's a, a false expectation where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. You might have heard this taught. And it's often cherry-picked by people as the, the verse that they live by. And, and it's interpreted often as fullness of life equaling Western, middle-class um, happiness. Uh, it's 
it's the full life of the, the the happy families and the whatever the travel, all that stuff I talked about before, the beauty, the ecstatic relationships. But the full life that Jesus is talking about in John ten ten is similar to what we've just talked about. It's a full life that is ultimately rooted in in the eternal life that you have, and the the, the full life which is the purpose that you have to live the way God wants you to live now. So there's an antidote that we need to kind of apply to this false thinking, isn't there? That we don't make idols as Christians of the Western life. We should search our hearts and work out really what we're, what kind of full life we're pursuing. Is it a full life uh, of, of doing what we've been created to do by God or is it a full life trying to have all the Western experiences that we think are, give you a great life? You can look at your bank balance and work that out how you spend your money and your time, your diary. What's your diary focused on? Is it, is it living that ecstatic sort of inverted commas fullness of life or is it, is it serving God? Is it living for him? Is it living for others? So that's the first mistake that we can make. The second mistake we can make is more subtle and harder to see, but it's related. In the last 20 or 30 years, there's a kind of a false teaching that's got inside the church that is really hard to see that says that real life happens when you are free to be yourself and pursue your dreams. You could call it the eat, pray, love gospel. You could call it the Oprah gospel. And it's now part of our culture. Last week in America, there was the IF gathering, which is a... um, it's the biggest evangelical women's gathering in America. It's about 100,000 people. And it's called if because if God is real, then now what is, I think, the catchphrase. And one of the common phrases used in the if gathering is the phrase, the word, unleashed. If you become a Christian, if, you, if you're with Jesus, Jesus will unleash you to live the life that you want to live. He will, he will, um, you know, he will set you free. Now, it sounds a little bit like, for we are God's hand who are creating Christ Jesus to do good, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A little bit like that, or um, living life to the full, you know, being, being unleashed by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the problem is, it's interpreted this way. It's interpreted that your life seems a bit dreary, you know, in your job which is kind of okay but your boss is a bit annoying and you know you've got all these chores at work and you're tired all the time and your health is not so great but if only you could be unleashed you could live this ecstatic life that's over there somewhere and the false teaching the subtle teaching is that Jesus will enable you to do that this is not life with Christ. This is not what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. This is not what Jesus is talking about. It doesn't, this false gospel doesn't get taught explicitly, or sometimes it does, but often it doesn't. It's communicated partly by who stands up the front in church and in the conferences. It's communicated in the social media of pastors, you know, who who just kind of present this amazing life travel and beautiful wives and husbands and kids that are succeeding at school and and the congregation and the christians think oh wow if i could just be like that but that's an eat pray love gospel so perhaps the problem with the person who looked admirably and a bit jealously at their non-christian friends who seemed more alive than they did 
was that they grew up believing this lie. Alive in Christ, alive with Christ, is the true full life. It's the restored relationship with God. It's the ultimate act of God's kindness, mercy, love and grace. He has given you a a new purpose to do good works. But it might involve you living a really simple life and repetitive life. It might involve you giving up your middle-class dream and actually going and moving to Africa somewhere and serving poor people where there are, you know, you might be, you know, your life might be in danger. It might be serving somebody in your family here in Melbourne who actually is suffering from some kind of health problem. These are all the sorts of things that Christ calls us to. The gospel of Oprah is not really interested in this, neither is the gospel of eat, pray, love. But the true full life, the true life with Christ, is more real, more interesting, more eternal, more glorious than anything else on offer. So the antidote to this kind of eat, pray, love kind of teaching is that we are to be honest with each other, not presenting some kind of false image that we've got it all together. That's just perpetuating the lie, isn't it? We know if we dig dig beneath the surface in this room when we're not, we don't have it all together. We struggle with stuff. We're, We're confused about things. We doubt. We experience hardship. But we also have some good times as well. Despite all of that, we're alive in Christ and we hold on to that hope. I want to finish by addressing the Christian who's in this room who is thinking to themselves, I'm supposed to feel alive with Christ, but I feel dead. What's wrong with me? And look, every Christian goes through these periods, sometimes long periods of feeling drought in their faith, sometimes feeling like God's against you. And there's a verse from Isaiah 42 that is quoted um, in the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus. And it says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. And there's a great book that I read last year um, by the 17th century English Puritan called Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. And in it he says that if you're one of these Christians that doesn't feel alive, you just feel dead, but you think you should be feeling alive as a Christian, then, and you have some concern for this, then that, that concern, that little bit of concern you've got, is the smouldering wick. It's like, imagine a candle and it's been burning and it's almost out and there's just a little bit of a glow and a little bit of smoke still coming off the candle. And, and Richard Sibb says, that is the smouldering wick. That little bit of concern you've got that you're still a Christian, that your salvation is secure, even though you feel dead. And he says, you need to have hope that he will not, he being Jesus, will not snuff out that smouldering wick. So you're only really in trouble when you just don't care about your salvation anymore. When you, and you go, I don't care about Jesus, I don't care about my salvation, I feel, I feel spiritually dry, but actually I don't really even care about that. That's when the smouldering wick is gone. That's a t- totally different issue. I'm talking about when you are concerned for yourself, when you, when you care what God thinks about you, and you're just struggling because you feel almost like on your last legs. Be encouraged that that little sign is a sign of the Holy Spirit is still working in your life. 
Be encouraged by that. And secondly, don't trust your feelings. Feelings are the worst indicator of what is true. Perhaps you're depressed, in which case you're not thinking clearly. Perhaps you're worried about stuff in your life, anxiety, whatever it is. You're not thinking clearly. That doesn't make the objective truths not true. You hold on to those objective, objective truths. Last year, um, I saw a, a psychologist for a few months and he gave me this great tip which he called anchors and he and it's this kind of psych he was bringing together sort of the gospel and psychology which i found really helpful and he was saying that because of the way our brain works sometimes you don't feel what is true you can think even that god's against you or whatever it is he says an anchor is like a statement you have that you just tell yourself this is what is true i don't care what i feel and you just tell it to yourself when you're feeling that feeling. Um, you might be feeling all kinds of confused, painful thoughts, lies about God. That's when you bring out this anchor. So you're sitting on the tram, you're walking to work, you're doing the dishes, you're whatever. Perhaps your anchor could be this. Faith in Jesus has made me spiritually alive. Now I can live the life God wants me to live. You just tell yourself, even if you don't feel anything. It is amazing how these anchors change the way you think and over time feel as well. And even if the feelings always are a bit murky for you, hold on to those objective truths. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for rescuing us from being dead in our um, transgressions and sins and for making us alive with Christ. And all the um, mystery and cool stuff around around that which is so profound to think about being being seated with christ in the heavenly realms even though we're sitting here in the room now we pray that um we can hold on to these truths even though if, if we might be feeling dry even if we're have been we've been um, conned by the eat pray love kind of gospel um we pray that we can return to what it really means to be alive with christ amen